Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite by John Muir, Part 11, Chief Tanaya. This episode tells the early history of Yosemite and the encounters and conflict that ensued between the native tribes and the miners during the gold rush of 1849. This episode has occasional reference to conflict and violence that some listeners may find unsettling. However, this story has been edited to be more suitable for sleep. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Early History of the Valley In the wild gold years of 1849 and 50, the native tribes along the western Sierra foothills became alarmed at the sudden invasion of their acorn orchard and game fields by miners, and soon began to make war upon them. This continued until the United States Native Commissioner succeeded in gathering them into reservations, some peacefully, others by burning their villages and stores of food. The Yosemite, or Grizzly Bear tribe, fancying themselves secure in their deep mountain stronghold, were the most troublesome and defiant of all, and it was while the Mariposa Battalion, under the command of Major Savage, was trying to capture this warlike tribe and conduct them to the Fresno Reservation, that their deep mountain home, the Yosemite Valley, was discovered. From a camp on the south fork of the Merced, Major Savage sent native runners to the band, who were supposed to be hiding in the mountains, that if they would come in and make their treaty with the commissioners, they would be furnished with food and clothing and be protected. But if they did not come in, he would make war upon them and kill them all. 
None of the Yosemite natives responded to this general message, but when a special messenger was sent to the chief, he appeared the next day. He came entirely alone and stood in dignified silence before one of the guards until invited to enter the camp. He was recognized by one of the friendly natives as Tanaya, the old chief of the Grizzlies, and, after he had been supplied with food, Major Savage, with the aid of native interpreters, informed him of the wishes of the commissioner. But the old chief was very suspicious of Savage, and feared that he was taking this method of getting the tribe into his power for the purpose of revenging his personal wrong. Savage told him if he would go to the commissioners and make peace with them, as the other tribes had done, there would be no more war. Tanaya inquired what was the object of taking all the natives to the San Jacquin Plain. My people, said he, do not want anything from the Great Father you tell me about. The Great Spirit is our father, and he has always supplied us with all we need. We do not want anything from white men. We are quite capable of doing our own work. Go then, let us remain in the mountains where we were born, where the ashes of our fathers have been given to the wind. I have said enough. To this, the major answered abruptly, If you and your people have all you desire, why do you steal our horses and mules? Why do you rob the miners' camps? Why do you murder the white men and plunder and burn their houses? Tanaya was silent for some time. He evidently understood what the major had said, for he replied, My young men have sometimes taken horses and mules from the whites. This was wrong. It is not wrong to take the property of the enemy who have wronged my people. My young men believed that the gold diggers were our enemies. We now know they are not, and we shall be glad to live in peace with them. We will stay here and be friends. My people do not want to go to the plains. Some of the tribes who have gone there are very bad. We cannot live with them. Here we can defend ourselves. To this, Major Savage firmly said, Your people must go to the Commissioner. If they do not, your young men will again steal horses and kill and plunder our people. It was your people who robbed my stores, burned my houses, and killed my men. If they do not make a treaty, your whole tribe will be destroyed. Not one of them will be left alive. To this, the old chief replied, It is useless to talk to you about who destroyed your property and killed your people. I am old, and you can kill me if you will, but it is useless to lie to you. Therefore, I will not lie to you, 
but if you will let me return to my people, I will bring them in. He was allowed to go. The next day, he came back and said his people were on their way to our camp to go with the men sent by the great father who was so good and rich. Another day passed, but no natives from the deep valley appeared. The old chief said that the snow was so deep and his village was so far down that it took a long time to climb out of it. After waiting still another day, the expedition started for the valley. When Tanaya was questioned as to the route and distance, he said that the snow was so deep that the horses could not get through it. Old Tanaya was taken along as guide. When the party had gone about halfway to the valley, they met the Yosemites on their way to the camp on the South Fork. There were only 72 of them, and when the old chief was asked what had become of the rest of his band, he replied, This is all of my people that are willing to go with me to the plains. All the rest have gone with their wives and children over the mountain to the Mono and Tulum tribes. Savage told Tanaya that he was not telling the truth, for natives could not cross the mountains in the deep snow, and that he knew they must still be in his village or hiding somewhere near it. The tribe had been estimated to number over 200. Major Savage then said to him, You may return to camp with your people, and I will take one of your young men with me to your village to see your people who will not come. They will come if I find them. You will not find any of my people there, said Tanaya. I do not know where they are. My tribe is small. Many of the people of my tribe have come from other tribes, and if they go to the plains and are seen, they will be killed by the friends of those with whom they have quarreled. I was told that I was growing old, and it was well that I should go, but that young and strong men can find plenty in the mountains. Therefore, why should they go to the hot plains to be penned up like horses and cattle? My heart has been sore since that talk, but I am now willing to go, for it is the best for my people. Pushing ahead, taking turns in breaking away through the snow, they arrived in sight of the great valley early in the afternoon, and, guided by one of Tanaya's natives, descended by the same route as that followed by the Mariposa Trail, and the weary party went into camp on the riverbank opposite El Capitan. After supper, seated around a big fire, the wonderful valley became the topic of conversation, and Dr. Bernal suggested giving it a name. Many were proposed, but after a vote had been taken, the name Yosemite, proposed by Dr. Bernal, was adopted almost unanimously to perpetuate the name of the tribe 
who so long had made their home there. The native name of the valley, however, is Awani. The natives have names for all the different rocks and streams of the valley, but very few of them are now in use by us European settlers. Pohono, the Bridal Veil, being the principal one. The expedition remained only one day and two nights in the valley, hurrying out on the approach of a storm and reached the South Fork headquarters on the evening of the third day after starting out. Thus, in three days, the round trip had been made to the valley. Most of it had been explored in a general way, and some of its principal features had been named. But the natives had fled up the Tanaya Canyon Trail, and none of them were seen, except an old woman unable to follow the fugitives. A second expedition was made in the same year under command of Major Bowling. When the valley was entered, no natives were seen, but the many settlements with smouldering fires showed that they had been hurriedly abandoned that very day. Later, five young natives who had been left to watch the movements of the expedition were captured at the foot of the three brothers after a lively chase. Three of the five were sons of the old chief, and the rock was named for them. All of these captives made good their escape within a few days, except the youngest son of Tanaya, who was shot by his guard while trying to escape. That same day, the old chief was captured on the cliff of the east side of the Indian Canyon by some of Bowling's scouts. As Tanaya walked towards the camp, his eye fell upon the dead body of his favorite son. Captain Bowling, through an interpreter, expressed his regret at the occurrence, but not a word did Tanaya utter in reply. Later, he made an attempt to escape, but was caught as he was about to swim across the river. Tanaya expected to be shot for this attempt, and when brought into the presence of Captain Bowling, he said in great emotion, Please, end it for me, sir. Yes, end it for me, like you ended it for my son, and as you would for my people if they were to come to you. You would end it for all of my tribe if you had the power. Yes, Sir America. You can now tell your warriors to kill the old chief. You have made my life dark with sorrow. You killed the child of my heart. Why not kill the father? But wait a little, and when I am dead, I will call my people to come, and they shall hear me in their sleep, and come to avenge the death of their chief and his son. Yes, Sir America. My spirit will make trouble for you and your people, as you have made trouble for me and my people. With the wizards, I will follow the white people and make them fear me. You may kill me, Sir Captain, but you shall not live in peace. I will follow in your footsteps. I will not leave my home, 
but be with the spirits among the rocks, the waterfalls, in the rivers, and in the winds. Wherever you go, I will be with you. You will not see me, but you will fear the spirit of the old chief, and grow cold. The great spirit has spoken. I am done. This expedition finally captured the remnants of the tribes at the head of Lake Tanaya and took them to the Fresno Reservation, together with their chief, Tanaya. But after a short stay, they were allowed to return to the valley under restrictions. Tanaya promised faithfully to conform to everything required, joyfully left the hot and dry reservation, and with his family, returned to his Yosemite home. The following year, a party of miners was attacked by the natives in the valley, and two of them were killed. This led to another Yosemite expedition. A detachment of regular soldiers from Fort Miller under Lieutenant Moore, USA, was at once dispatched to capture or punish the murderers. Lieutenant Moore entered the valley in the night and surprised and captured a party of five natives. But an alarm was given, and Tanaya and his people fled from their huts and escaped to the Monos on the east side of the range. On examination of the five prisoners in the morning, it was discovered that each of them had some article of clothing that belonged to the murdered men. The bodies of the two miners were found and buried on the edge of Bridal Vale Meadow. When the captives were accused of murdering the two miners, they admitted that they had killed them to prevent the white men from coming to their valley, declaring that it was their home and that white men had no right to come without their consent. Lieutenant Moore told them through his interpreter that they had sold their land to the government, that it belonged to the white men now, and that they had agreed to live on the reservation provided for them. To this they replied that Tanaya had never consented to the sale of their valley, and had never received pay for it. The other chief, they said, had no right to sell their territory. The lieutenant, being fully satisfied that he had captured the real murderers, promptly pronounced judgment and had them executed. Lieutenant Moore pursued the fugitives to Mono, but was not successful in finding any of them. After being hospitably entertained and protected by the Mono and Port tribes, they stole a number of stolen horses from their entertainers and made their way by a long, obscure route by the head of the North Fork of the San Joaquin, reached their Yosemite home once more, but early one morning, after a feast of horse flesh, a band of monos surprised them in their huts, killing Tanaya and nearly all his tribe. Only a small remnant escaped down the river canyon. The Tanaya Canyon and Lake were named for the famous old chief. Very few visits were made to the valley before the summer of 1855, when Mr. J. M. Hutchings 
having heard of its wonderful scenery, collected a party and made the first regular tourist's visits to the Yosemite, and in California magazine, described it in an article illustrated by a good artist who was taken into the valley by him for that purpose. This first party was followed by another from Mariposa the same year, consisting of 16 or 18 persons. The next year, the regular pleasure travel began, and a trail on the Mariposa side of the valley was opened by Man Brothers. This trail was afterwards purchased by the citizens of the country and made free to the public. The first house built in the Yosemite Valley was erected in the autumn of 1856 and was kept as a hotel the next year by G. A. Height and later by J. H. Neal and S. M. Cunningham. It was situated directly opposite the Yosemite Fall. A little over half a mile farther up the valley, a canvas house was put up in 1858 by G. A. Height. Next year, a frame house was built and kept as a hotel by Mr. Peck, afterwards by Mr. Longhurst, and since 1864 by Mr. Hutchings. All these hotels have vanished except the frame house built in 1859, which has been changed beyond recognition. A large hotel built on the brink of the river in front of the old one is now the only hotel in the valley. A large hotel built by the state and located farther up the valley was burned. To provide for the overflow of visitors, there are three camps with board floors, wood frame, and covered with canvas, well furnished, some of them with electric light. A large first-class hotel is very much needed. Travel of late years has been rapidly increasing, especially after the establishment by Act of Congress in 1890 of the Yosemite National Park and the recession in 1905 of the original reservation to the federal government by the state. The greatest increase, of course, was caused by the construction of the Yosemite Valley Railroad by Merced to the border of the park, eight miles below the valley. It is 80 miles long, and the entire distance except the first 24 miles from the town of Merced, is built through the precipitous Merced River Canyon. The roadbed was virtually blasted out of the solid rock for the entire distance in the canyon. Work was begun in September 1905, and the first train entered El Portal, the terminus, April 15, 1907. Many miles of the road cost as much as $100,000 per mile. Its business has increased from 4,000 tourists in the first year it operated to 15,000 in 1910. Le Mans The good old pioneer, Le Mans, 
was the first of all the early Yosemite settlers who cordially and unreservedly adopted the valley as his home. He was born in Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, May 10, 1817, emigrated to Illinois with his father, John Lamont, at the age of 19, afterwards went to Texas and settled on the Brazos, where he raised melons and hunted alligators for a living. Right interest in business, he said, especially the alligator part of it. From the Brazos, he went to Comanche native country between Gonzales and Austin, 20 miles from his nearest neighbor. During the first summer, the only bread he had was the breast meat of wild turkeys. When the formidable Comanche natives were on the warpath, he left his cabin after dark and slept in the woods. From Texas, he crossed the plains to California and worked in the Calaveras and Mariposa goldfields. He first heard Yosemite spoken of as a very beautiful mountain valley, and after making two excursions in the summers of 1857 and 1858 to see the wonderful place, he made up his mind to quit roving and make a permanent home in it. In April 1859, he moved into it, located a garden opposite the half dome, set out a lot of apple, pear, and peach trees, planted potatoes, etc., that he had packed in an country old mule, and worked for his board in building a hotel which was afterwards purchased by Mr. Hutchings. His neighbors thought he was very foolish in attempting to raise crops in so high and cold a valley, and warned him that he would raise nothing and sell nothing, and would surely starve. For the first year or two, lack of provisions compelled him to move out on the approach of winter. But in 1862, after he had succeeded in raising some fruit and vegetables, he began to winter in the valley. The first winter, he had no companions, not even a dog or cat, and one evening was greatly surprised to see two men coming up the valley. They were very glad to see him, for they had come from Mariposa in search of him, a report having been spread that he had been killed by natives. He assured his visitors that he felt safer in his Yosemite home, lying snug and squirrel-like in his ten times twelve cabin, than in Mariposa. When the avalanche began to slip, he wondered where all the wild roaring and booming came from, the flying snow preventing them from being seen. But, upon the whole, he wondered most at the brightness, gentleness, and sunniness of the weather, and hopefully employed the calm days in tearing ground for an orchard and vegetable garden. In the second winter, he built a winter cabin under the royal arches, where he enjoyed more sunshine. But no matter how he praised the weather, he could not induce anyone to winter with him until 1864, 
He liked to describe the Great Flood of 1867, the year before I reached California, when all the walls were stripped with thundering waterfalls. He was a fine, erect, whole-souled man, between six and seven feet high, with a broad, open face, bland and guideless as his pet oxen. No stranger to hunger and weariness, he knew well to appreciate suffering of a like kind in others, and many there be, myself among them, who can testify to his simple, unostentatious kindness that found expression in a thousand small deeds. After gaining sufficient means to enjoy a long afternoon of life in comparative affluence and ease, he died in the autumn of 1876. He sleeps in a beautiful spot near Gallon Clark, and a monument hewn from a block of Yosemite granite marks his grave. <laughs> 